We are back talking with author Edward T. Haslam about his fascinating book, Dr. Mary's Monkey, How the Unsolved Murder of a Doctor, a Secret Laboratory in New Orleans, and Cancer-Causing Monkey Viruses are linked to Lee Harvey Oswald, the JFK assassination, and emerging global epidemics. I know we have a lot of listeners out there who work at the Primate Center, epidemiologists, medical researchers, and I'm sure, Ed, you'd agree that we like to hear from the public about this very topic, people that have expertise in this area about cancer rates and things like that. I would dearly love to get some feedback. Hope they'll write us at info at radioparallax.com and let us know what they know. Yes, that's a great idea because, you know, I'm one of the motives behind my thing is I want to hear public debate on this, yeah. you know, amongst knowledgeable people because I, I am not medically trained, but I'm fairly well read and I've taken the subject to heart. And... And one of the things I've, I keep trying to do is put myself in, in the shoes of, of the uh, doctors involved at the time. Um, and, again, that's my perspective as my father was a doctor who's Mary Sherman's friend, you know. And try to figure out what is it that they did, what did they do once they knew, you know. Well, the first thing you do is you stamp it secret because you don't want to get lynched, because what you really have to say is we just mass inoculated all your children with a cancer-causing virus. And the second thing you want to do is you want to get really busy trying to find a uh, vaccine to stop it. Uh, In the meantime, you want people not to know that viruses can cause cancer. Um, You know, today we're 2014, and the pharmas are out marketing um, a vaccine to stop the HPV, um, the human papillomavirus, um, so if they're marketing an antivirus vaccine, they can no longer say that there are no cancer-causing viruses. Um, so that has shifted quite a bit in the years. And even if you go back to 1959, you got Time Magazine, cover of Time sure. Magazine, the new, new War on Cancer, um, and they talk about cancer-causing viruses uh, in that article. And in that article, there's a photograph of um, Dr. Stuart Netty, uh, and they... Um, propose in the article that we might be able to develop an anti-cancer vaccine. Now, this is 1959, okay? Well, when you look at the, the Salk and Sabin vaccines on polio, what's interesting is they had kind of three flavors of polio. I'm going to call them heavy, medium, and light. The one that really killed and crippled was the heavy one, okay? So Salk said, that's the only one that really hurts you. What we do is we, we attack that, we drown it from aldehyde, and we kill it, and we put the dead virus into your child's bloodstream. There it'll provoke an immune response is the logic behind it. Well, the Cutter Laboratories, which were in California, um, when they started to produce um, uh, Salk's vaccine, um, discovered that the idea did not work well in a production mode. And there, it was actually, Salk's vaccine was launched in April of 1955. They had a big press conference up at Ann Arbor, Michigan, March of Dimes. And they said, this, uh, field trials are over. And that means they were testing on kids before they approved it. Um, the field trial, trials are over. Um, this thing is safe and effective. Everybody roll up your sleeves. You're about to get... Um, uh, a new vaccine. This is going to be coast to coast. We're going to wipe out this disease once and for all. And then they turned to Dr. Bernice Eddy, uh, MD, PhD, who is the chief vaccine safety tester for the United States government up at NIH, and says, Dr. Eddy, would you please approve these things for us? 
and <laughs> and we're in a hurry. You know, yeah, we're 125 it, kids a day are getting this. Somewhat of an awkward so, position uh, to be in. <laughs> right, and so she goes back and injects it into her um, monkeys back at the lab, and they all get polio. You know, and and I mean, not all of them, but a, a group of them get polio. And she says, look, there's a problem here. I don't know what it is, but it's all coming out of this batch from Cutter Laboratories. Um, Cutter needs to withdraw its um, batch from the launch. And they uh, pick up the telephone, and they call Cutter Laboratories. And, of course, this goes straight to the, <laughs> the biggest stockholder in there, which is Dr. Alton Oshner in New Orleans. <laughs> and the lab's in California, but Oshner's the investor, and he's in New Orleans. And and, and Oshner, his attitude is uh, some bureaucrat up in Bethesda is trying to mess up the most important medical event in history due to this launch, you know, blah, 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 with red tape. And he's, he calls the he's chief of surgery at Tulane Medical School at the time. He calls the um, faculty together into the um, amphitheater. And, you know, my father and Mary are part of the crowd. And uh, he says, look, there's a controversy over the salt vaccine. And... Um, I've known Jonas Hall for 20 years, and, uh, you know, this thing is safe, and I follow this every step of the way, and I would never ask you to do anything I wasn't willing to do myself. And this is my grandson, and here's my granddaughter, and he inoculates them right there in front of the faculty. And within 48, 72 hours, his grandson is dead, and his granddaughter has polio. So there was a problem with the Cutter batch, and this problem replicated itself in numerous places across the country, and Salk's vaccine got withdrawn after about two weeks, which uh, most people don't know because he had such great PR and retired to the Bluffs of California and, and stuff and uh, got a plaque on the White House lawn for his uh, efforts and all that. And then we went for about six months with no um, vaccine, and then Sabin's vaccine comes in. Sabin says, you don't have to mess with polio heavy. Just use polio light. It doesn't really... Uh, cause serious problems, doesn't kill and cripple, and so you can leave it alive. You don't have to try to kill it. You leave it alive, and you um, put that in the bloodstream, okay? And that will cause the, the body to, and, and even with Sabin, they, they calculated that there'd be 140 kids get polio from the vaccine. Sure. They went ahead and did it anyway. So once they realized that there was a cancer-causing virus, in the polio vaccine, and they were in a huge hurry to try to develop a vaccine for this. The problem was they did not have three flavors of SV40, which was the virus in question. They only had SV40, and that was bad. All right, I mean, this thing is like the most carcinogenic entity ever discovered by science. And so, you know, I'm looking at this from their point of view. What do they need to do? They need to get it to mutate into something that looks and smells and tastes like it, but doesn't cause the disease. So they can use that in a parallel method to the Sabin strategy there um, as the basis for a vaccine. So they set up a, um, a facility in, in New Orleans. They don't want it up around Bethesda where there's too many people poking their noses into things. They want it on a remote campus so that they find some federal property in uptown New Orleans. It's an old U.S. public health service um, thing right down on the river. Uh, they built it during World War I so they could bring in the troops and offload them right there. And it's got about 13 buildings on campus. And so in one of the buildings on the back, um, they installed this um, linear particle accelerator manufactured by high-voltage engineering in Boston. 
that was installed down there, and they began doing these secret radiation experiments, initially hoping to um, mutate SV40 into a benign strain. Now, this is like a medical Manhattan project. You know, in, in fact, we, we eventually tracked down the guy that installed the linear particle accelerator there. And one of the things that he said was he installed linear particle accelerators all over the world. Okay, I mean, example, in South Africa, where they have diamond mines, well, they come out with these yellow diamonds. Well, they're not marketable. they got sulfur in them. So they put them in front of the gamma ray beam, and the gamma rays would strip the sulfur out of the diamonds. <laughs> I mean, that's what these things can do. <laughs> These are very expensive machines. I mean, they were like ten million bucks in in, in those days, mm-hmm. and uh, so it'd be like a seventy to a hundred million bucks today. And so normally there was like a mortgage where you'd pay the thing off so many dollars each month or each year. So it was a finance contract. He said the, the equipment in New Orleans was paid for within seven days, within a week, uh, by six different checks of six different amounts from six different banks. Wow. You speak with the author. Edward Haslam about his book, Dr. Mary's Monkey. Certainly, you, you did track down pretty persuasive evidence about an accelerator go, in, in New Orleans. And in essence, have linked Dr. Oshner, Dr. Sherman, and some, you know, some peripheral roles evidently being played by David Ferry and, and Lee Oswald. I want to introduce one character here just briefly. I don't want to get into the controversy over here, but Judith Ferry Baker has arrived on the scene claiming that she can link all of this. She's a controversial figure. She does appear to have been in New Orleans at the at the Riley Coffee Company, the same time that Oswald was greasing coffee grinders, an odd facility being that, according to Jim Garrison, people left that to join NASA, which is always thought very, very odd. But, but there's something very, perhaps the most bizarre thing in your book that's filled with bizarre episodes, Ed, is, is the fact that Judith Very Baker claims to have known Oswald Ferry, Dr. Sherman. That may be. Like I said, she's a very controversial figure. But, but the, the, most, the strange thing about this is, that back in 1972, or thereabouts, when you were interested in, in all of this, you met someone claiming to be Judith Ferry Baker and claiming to dangle some information she had about Lee Oswald. And you can tell us, with assurance, this is not the person we know today as Judith Ferry Baker. I need you to talk about this this little episode, because it is so bizarre. Well, um, I was at Tulane University at the time. I had a new girlfriend who had just come down from the University of Chicago, and she was kind of a a liberal, I'll say, and she had gotten into an argument with another graduate student who was from uh, South America. This guy from South America had told her that Dr. Oshner was involved with a bunch of um, Nazis, from South America, and he was on the board of Tulane. Well, he wasn't on the board of Tulane. That was a, a, not a correct piece of information, but he was the chief of surgery at Tulane Medical School. And, and Barbara came to me, and, and she, she said, I'm really concerned. You know, I'm, I've signed up to get my Ph.D. from this school. This, the name Tulane is going to follow me around the rest of my uh, career, and have I just, uh, you know, gotten on board w- with a bunch of, you know, anti-communist nutcases and, you know, <laughs> She said, I want you to talk to this guy. And so I went to pick her up over at the uh, Social Sciences building where she was, and there was this guy. We went to have coffee, and we started talking about stuff. And I started talking about that 
uh, interview in Playboy magazine that Garrison did where he talked about David Ferry's laboratory and they were developing a biological weapon and trying to kill Fidel Castro and that you know, viruses could cause cancer. And this this guy was just tilting. And, and when the name Oshner came up, he, he really, I mean, this thing stopped short of being a fight, okay? So after that, Barbara told me, she said, look, if you want to be my boyfriend, you've got to keep your mouth shut about this Jim Garrison, JFK stuff, okay? And then a couple of days later, she comes back to me and she says, well, your little performance the other day in the cafeteria wasn't all bad. It got us invited to a party. And so um, she said, there's this woman. She's a real brain. She's in the graduate women's thing here at Tulane. She works down at the medical school. And she's throwing this party for women in grad school at Tulane. And so we're allowed to bring our significant others, but, you know, the guys have to realize it's a women's party and, and behave. Okay? <laughs> right. So it, this is her idea of feminism, 1972. And so we get over there, and right before we go in, um, I said, well, you know, I, I like to know who the hostess is, you know, so I can thank the hostess and use her name properly and stuff. And, and she said her name is Judith Very Baker. So that's going to be Judy. And she said, no, 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 no. This is Judith Very Baker. Okay. So we go on in, and I meet this woman. And remember, I'm on threat of probation for not opening my mouth about the JFK thing, right? Mm-hmm. And we get up there, and after a while, Barbara comes kind of rushing back into the, the kitchen where I'm standing. And um, before this happens, I wind up talking one-on-one with this Judith Ferry Baker gal that I'm introduced to. Mm-hmm. And uh, she's doing something, some kind of research down at the medical school. And I ask her if she knows my father or knew my father. My father just died. But um, no, never heard his name before and all that stuff, which was strange to me because it was a very common experience for me to have people say, oh, you're Ed Haslam. You must be Ed Haslam's son, you know. At any rate, uh, later in the evening, Barbara comes rushing back in and says, Ed, they're talking about all that stuff you were talking about in the cafeteria the other day, uh, about David Ferry's apartment and Lee Oswald and all this stuff. And I'm thinking, oh, this is great. You know, I'm, I'm sworn to silence here. <laughs> and, and, and I'm at a with a bunch of half-drunk feminists, and, and they're talking about all this stuff, so what do I do? So I, I finally just told Barbara, I said, you asked me not to talk about this. Um, can we leave? And, and she says yes. And then about two weeks later, Barbara got a phone call from this gal and uh, inviting us to come over to dinner with just her and her husband. And I, I said, that Judith gal, what was her last name? And Barbara said, Baker. And I said, yeah. Is she the gal that said that she was Lee Harvey Oswald's good friend? And she said, oh, yeah, I forgot about that. So I, I haven't, and I don't want to go to um, dinner at their house because of it. So, to me, that was a very strange story, and I even thought about putting it in my first book, but I just, I I couldn't believe that everything that happened to me in New Orleans was somehow centered around this thing. And how do you put that story together? It's so, it is so odd. Well, somebody obviously knew who Judith Ferry Baker was and knew about her connection to Lee Oswald, and since I was shooting off my mouth about uh, Dr. Mary Sherman and David Ferry and, and Lee Oswald, and if you, you bother to look a little bit and you realize that my father was Mary Sherman were good friends, maybe I might actually know something that they needed to know. I mean, they had sort of a, a, a damage assessment to do. I don't think they needed to tell me her name, but they did. But one thing is 
if you talk to people that do intelligence work, I mean, they love to do things like change the insignias on uniforms and stuff and just do things that mess up everybody's assumptions, mm-hmm. okay? So if Judith Very Baker ever shows up, I'm in a position to say, oh, you're not the real Judith Very Baker. I met the real Judith Very Baker. Okay, you, you see the position that puts the real Judith Very Baker in, mm-hmm. where people are calling her a fraud, and I'm saying I knew the real Judith Very Baker. Well, the moment I realized that was going on, I, I said, you know, I better pay attention to who this new Judith Very Baker is, because nobody would have gone through that trouble to set a trap like that for her with me unless they really had a reason. And the, one of the ways you catch these people is they overplay their parts. The, the way I got involved with Judith Ferry Baker, 60 Minutes brought her to me. Okay, They had not been investigating her for over a year. And it was very clear to me just from talking to the 60 Minutes people that the woman that I met who was sort of thin and uh, flat-chested and stuff was, was not Judith Ferry Baker, okay, who was very curvaceous looking gal, and um, and the gal I was looking at had sort of a freckly, bumpy nose, which uh, Judith definitely does not have. And, and so I realized we're, we were talking about two people. Somebody had set up a fake, a cutout of the real Judith Berry Baker, and she used all these, these phrases like, uh, oh, I do esoteric work on exotic chemicals. Well, the moment the real Judith Very Baker shows up, she says, oh, I do esoteric work on exotic chemicals. And, wow. and I realized that they had patterned everything on her. And so my initial statement on this is I know two people named Judith Very Baker, and I'm absolutely certain one of them is a fraud. <laughs> and, and I want to figure out which one. Well, I, I want to ask you, too, your, your, your dad, your physician dad, Dr. Sherman's colleague, orthopedic department, he evidently felt there was something extremely odd about uh, the whole affair, Dr. Sherman's death, whatever. And I guess as he was nearing a death, you tried to g- engage him to, to have him explain what it is he, he thought he knew, and, and he elected not to do so. More than that, I mean, he, he gave me a, a very stern warning. He, he wouldn't tell me because he had to protect the family. And, and, and here, here's the circumstance. My father developed lung cancer. He was a heavy smoker. But he was a surgeon all his life, and he and I talked a lot. And uh, we both knew, due to his poor health and the uh, severity of the surgery, that he probably wasn't going to come out of it. We're talking about one in three, maybe one in two odds. So we were having a conversation. He was telling me, take care of your mother, do this, do that. I mean, he was giving me his last instructions, and I realized this was going to be my last time to ever ask him anything. I knew he had all kinds of suspicions about the public health hospital and Sherman's death, and and I didn't know if they were all connected at the time, but I I asked him to tell me, and he said he wouldn't tell me. And I said, what if I figure it out myself? And he said, I'm hardly in a position to stop you. (laughs) But I, I will say this. He said, Ed, if you do this and figure out what happened down there and decide to tell the world about it, you need to realize you're going to be crossing swords with the most powerful people in the country. Well, we're going to have to pretty much leave it there. You, you, you've done some fascinating research into all of this. And, and I guess as I close, I would, I would want to ask you, Ed, in putting out that, that, that dragnet to our listening public, um, like I said, with a local primate center, research facilities nearby, what feedback are you most keen to receive from people who might be able to shed some light on any of this? 
I've gotten so much inbound information since I published the book, it, it's even hard for me to explain, and I never can anticipate what it was. Okay. I, mean, I, I have people telling me that Mary Sherman was doing secret radiation experiments at the Delta Regional Primate Center, you know, um, which was Tulane's primate facility. There are dozens of people that I've spoken to that know all about the cancer-causing um, monkey viruses and the polio vaccine. One of the things that I look at a lot is uh, when I see the cancer statistics in the media, I always notice that there's always a certain agenda with them, and they tend not to talk about incidence rates. They tend to talk about death rates. And they, you know, the big print giveth and the little print taketh away in the story and, and stuff. And the real data on the cancer thing has been fragmented so bad that it's really even hard to see. And remember I said I went to a medical library, and well, that went up to 88, the data I had, and I was in the 90s when I was writing this, and so I wondered if they had an update. I like to get current data. And I went back, and we spent hours looking for the updates, and what they had done was the news was so bad they had broken it down into pieces okay so if in the sense that i'm talking to the people in davis there the point is when you look at the data pay attention to the fact that they're avoiding showing you the big picture they're avoiding talking about incidence rates and they're trying to make sure you don't get the big picture the book is Dr. Mary's Monkey, How the Unsolved Murder of a Doctor, a Secret Laboratory in New Orleans, and Cancer-Causing Monkey Viruses are linked to Lee Harvey Oswald, the JFK assassination, and emerging global epidemics. We've been speaking with author Edward Haslam. It's a very well-written book, and I do hope that uh, our listeners will uh, avail themselves of a copy of this. And Ed, thank you so much for speaking with us. You're welcome, Doug. Thank you. All right, and summarizing that whole conversation we just had, and I think it does deserve at least a minute's worth of summary, we know that the government sometimes covers up things it doesn't want you to know about. I think that's fair to say. It sometimes also gets involved in things it probably shouldn't get involved in. Bioweapons research comes to mind. Now, there's some speculation that this facility that existed in New Orleans back in the 60s may have had something to do with the creation of bioweapons. Or perhaps it had something to do with, well, research into viruses that had escaped into the human population inadvertently. We don't know. But we think it's pretty clear that what happened to Dr. Mary Sherman was not what people thought had happened back in 1964. Technically, she was murdered because there had been a stab wound to the heart. But after examining the condition of the victim, it seems easy to imagine that... Um, she was put out of her misery by someone on the scene after suffering a horrendous accident. And it seems pretty clear that this world of hush-hush activities in New Orleans did, at least peripherally, involve that of Lee Harvey Oswald and David Ferry. Meaning that once again, when he looked into the JFK assassination case back in the 60s, Jim Garrison was on to something. I think we're going to have to leave it there today, although we're going to have plenty more to say about uh, viral research on probably next week's program. I have a big pile of stuff that would be a nice addendum to some of what we've been talking about. This program was produced by Edward McMillan. Our thanks to Edward Haslam for speaking with us. He's as good a writer as he is a speaker, so you may want to check out his book. Meanwhile, we will see you next week at the same time. I'm Douglas Everett. You've been listening to Radio Parallax. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.